Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, Edith Levine joins us from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Edith is the founder and CEO of Solo.io, who helps organizations with their adoption of Isito and Envoy Proxy. We'll learn more about that in just a bit. Edith Levine, we're so glad to have you join us on Maintainable. Welcome. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. So as you reflect on your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, well-maintained software? So, I mean, we can talk about what is a well-maintained software, but honestly, if the biggest thing that I can take off of this is the best maintained software is a software that actually is being used in production. And I think that one of the things that I learned from my career, you know, I was doing a lot of open source projects and got very excited and a lot of GitHub start. But honestly, in the end of the day, when we started actually creating a product and saw people running it in production, we discovered that honestly, that's the best way to actually maintain software and the point that then when you know when something is bad. And of course, in order to actually scale to that position, you need to make sure that when you're building the software, it's something that is uh, easily being extendable and, you know, and, and being uh, you know, as pluggable as you can make it for. So to me, mainly, honestly, the best one is the one that's being used. Do you think there's any correlation there in terms of the difference between like open source projects and say a, a, a product that you're selling? And like, do you think like maintainable open source software is very different than uh, like a proprietary solution in terms of main, when it comes to maintainability? Or is it that if there's no, f- is it or is part of that also just the if the developers can feed themselves because there, there's some money or there's something that they're getting something so they can keep themselves nourished so they can take care of the software product? I don't know. I think this is a very different uh, ecosystem, honestly, the people that are creating an open source. And this is, you know, I think that even there, there is a lot of type of open source. There's the people that are just going and doing it because they're very, very excited about it and wanted to contribute and excited about the community um, and really passionate about the technology. And there's the people that, you know, being put there by, by big companies, for instance, and that's a work for everything. I would say that when you're looking in generally on an open source product, again, if this is an open source project that, you know, being excited, but honestly not really being used, I think that, again, I do think that it's important that it will be very, you know, maintainable, but I will say that people usually, you know, missing a lot of environment, right? A problem, right? So like, you know, I remember when we created the first product and put it in product and people start putting it in production, suddenly we realize how much stuff we didn't think about it, right? I mean, the scale or some stuff that's specifically to that environment and so on. So I think that it just, you know, right? I mean, we're talking all the time about, I'm sure that people will answer you that a very maintained product is a product that being tested well. And to me, tested well, it's mean actually tested in production. I think that's the best we can describe that. I think that there is difference between open source and closed source. I think there were first, the first things, in, at least in my opinion, and what I'm telling my people, because we are an open source company, is that it's, everybody see what we're doing. We can't hack, <laughs> right? We actually need to do it right. 
Uh, and I think that this is this is this is one thing. Versus when you have an, a you know a closed project, you know there is some hack that you need to be there. Honestly, no one will notice. So I think that that's probably a huge difference. Probably it's way more important than it will look. It's interesting the aspect of uh, needing to do it in the open can kind of force you to or it doesn't have to force you I suppose but it at least makes a makes, adds a little bit of extra pressure to probably make sure you're crossing off you know the things you say you do what you consider best practices as a team otherwise people will you know may you know call you on that or, or have that be a, a reason for why they shouldn't use your product or your tool or what have you right and I will say that another thing is that it's very important if you are have a community you know or you're working on the open source I think that it's very, very important that it will be easy to maintain, as you said, right? Because people basically may be coming first time to the project and they need to ramp up really quick and they need to be able to contribute and you want them to contribute because you want to create that community. And therefore, I think that when you actually really see the product, you know, when you're finishing writing the code, honestly, it's just the 20% of the work. And I think the 80% is how do you make sure that people will be able to contribute? If this is a, you know, docs, if this is a demos, if this is a lot of other stuff that you need to do in order to make sure that people will be able, you know, to be up and running as soon as they can. That onboarding experience for any new users is definitely quite an important thing. Do you feel like your organization has a very different process for onboarding employees that are developers versus onboarding just users in the community? Is it, or do you feel like there's a lot of overlap? I think that in the beginning it was, right? In the beginning we basically said, you know, we were, you know, people that knew the software, so you know, it's easy to. <laughs> they were already in the base, so it was more important that the open source project or the docs about the open source to up and running will be way better, that it will make people easy to, to be up and running. As I said, I think that now when we start scaling dramatically and we have a more and more engineers joining every day, in the organization, it's, it's basically that's that we basically need to do exactly the same. That's our community, right? So it's exactly the same. So I think it's it's we make it way better. What is your take on the metaphor technical debt? I mean, honestly, you can ask in solo people, and they will tell you I'm pretty I'm pretty a big believer in the fact that we should fix it as soon as possible and not take it with us. So if you see, for instance, one of the products that we have right now in Solo, I'm not kidding you, this is probably the fourth time that we're writing it. And the reason it's the fourth time that we're writing it, because, you know, we can incrementally make it better, but then the foundation is still pretty bad. So it was important to us to take everything we learned from it and basically put it again. And it's a chance, right? Because basically what it means is that you're building an all-new product that could potentially be, you know, not as stabilized as the product that were before, but... It's worth the chance, in my opinion, because it's very important that, you know, the port, you know, that we will be able to scale it as soon as possible. So I can tell you that I worked in a startup before, and we had a product. It was running. The company was successful. That it was great. And our CTO back then took a huge chance by basically saying, we're going to take three people and rewrite the product. And I think that that's what make us what we were eventually. We got acquired by VMware. And the reason is because we just, you know, before that, when customer came and said to us, I want to add that feature, we said, okay, so what do we need to change in order to do this? We need to change, you know, back then it was a long time ago, but it was, you know, we need to change the UI, we need to change the API server, we need to change the, the backend, we need to change the stop procedure back then it was, and so on and so on and so on, right? And every change was very, very meaningful. 
So when we try to figure out how can we make the system pluggable enough, that it will be something that we will be able to add because we saw that customers are always asking to extend, right? And, I, and, and we took a chance, um, the CTO, and basically decided to rewrite everything in and basically create a platform that we will be able to enable the, those extensions really quick. And I think that was the reason we won, because when they went to become, you know, to the company back then, it was VMware that basically was competing with us. The, the, the response for the customer for the new uh, feature was something like a year, versus we could have given it in, in notions of a week. Right? And I think that that was really, really smart decision from the CEO, CTO. And then, of, of course, because after it will become a huge success, VMware just bought us. So I think that, I think that as you said, this is, it's more than just, oh, it's a nice you know, software and it's been terrible. It's more about that's going to scale the organization or not, right? It's just going to enable your customers or not. And I think that's extremely, extremely important. Admittedly, I've had very few people on the podcast over 100 episodes ever speak highly of rewrites as being a positive experience. So for those listening, you know, might be thinking that or be like, oh, maybe we could rewrite. Do you feel like there's a point within an organization where it's still a good calculated risk to take versus like, do you feel like there's like, fast forward to that previous company you're at, or maybe even your own company, you know, you go forward five, 10 years, you think rewrites are even like likely to be able to be happen at a large scale or is it more of like depending on how you're approaching the the your your platforms platforms or however you're going to approach that um that you can re-engineer things quite drastically and stay nimble like that i'm a big believer in the rewrite and i'm a big believer in the fact that you know it's all a trade-off of course right you cannot do it the question is how many resources you have and so on but i think that in the end goal it's always worthwhile and i think that if you're trying to do it incremental Usually, it's just not working eventually. You'll be getting this, like, you know, patching and technical debt and the problem because you can't attach it all. And I think that it's actually really good to kind of like do a refresh and do this. And I think that if you're doing it smart, you can do it quick, you can do it efficient. And in the long term, you probably save a lot of time. So we've done it, I can tell you, again and again in solo. We will continue doing it at solo. I'm not going to stop right now. I think this is great. And I think that then eventually we have a product that we can be proud of. And I can tell you that this is by far the best product that exists out there. And I, and I think that what I saw during my career is that there were different companies, even competitors, that did not do that. And that's how, why we managed to honestly overcome them. Because we had the better one, we could have scaled it way faster. When you're when you're going through that kind of decision process, you know you've got you mentioned like you know you might have like things consider like UI or existing customers already using it and like migration, right? And it's always like, well, how do we migrate to the new thing and how is this going to fit together? Is is our out of curiosity without knowing? And we'll dig into more into Solo's product offerings in a bit. But the is this sort of product something that is you're able to self-contain and host the infrastructure and everything, or is this something that people are taking themselves and deploying in their own infrastructure? And if so, how do you navigate that challenge of like... Yeah, so I think, again, it's always a plan, right? I mean, how can you move people? And I think that there is a few things, a way to do this. So first of all, you know, before when we did a rewrite, maybe there weren't a lot of people using the product, so that was relatively simple. You can maintain it. You're going to talk to the customer that you do have, and you say, look, we're going to move to this. Just plan ahead of this and basically uh, manage to do that. But honestly, as you said, once you have a lot of customers, that's becoming a, a little bit tricky, and that's the case of us right now. We have a lot. And I think that... Over time, 
you manage to move them all. And how do you do that? Either by creating migration tools. There is by putting the right people to help them there and to do that. And there's a lot of other options, uh, you know, that you will allow that. But I think that honestly, eventually, we are engineers, right? I mean, we can write transition script or translation script, you know, to, to move from one API to the other one. And we can definitely put people to help them do that. And then eventually it's happening. It's all about always the trade-off. When you're changing something, when you come to a customer and say to them, look, I want to change your API. I want to change the way you're deploying your product. I think that the question that they will ask themselves is, okay, that will cost us, right? Because we don't need to create the script again. We need to do this. We need to do that. And the question that they will ask is, then, would this will be worthwhile, but what, how much we're going to get? So that's my responsibility to make the product that will be 10 times better that, will want, that they will want to change to, and it will be what. And, that, and I'm telling you, I, until now, it's working really, really well. They, they're willing to put the, this effort because they understand that what they will get in the next one will be 10 times better. It just makes sense, right? And, and that's, I think, true, by the way, and everywhere. If you're thinking about Docker, right? Why Docker? Why people basically move to Docker? Because the benefit that people got from it was so big that it's worth to all the industry to come and create all those tools again and re-architecture application and do everything because the benefit that they got was so huge. So, so I think this is a, a repeatable thing. It's always about what does customer, how much it will cost and what, and what is the benefit. And if you manage to make it very clear that the benefit will be bigger, they will do this, right? There, there will be gain. I appreciate you digging into that for us. Um, I'm gonna have to do some some ruminating on that because I work in a, in the consulting world where we're helping companies with existing applications, and so they're usually not coming to us with the idea of doing a rewrite. And we don't even have enough context of the whole it, everything that their software does, and we're like trying to support the existing platform while building a re, rewrite in parallel is this very tricky thing where. Like, how is this ever going to converge at some point, you know, or replace itself? And that, that can be tricky. So, but I think if you have an organization where you've already have a process for how you think about rewrites, are you able to probably, I'm a safe assumption that you're able to leverage your past process for that? And like, oh, we've done this before. We know how we're going to go through that. So you, you, you have success stories to lean on. You're not having to like make up a migration plan every time. You're like, what did we do last time? And what do we need to account for now? I would imagine that, that could be quite helpful. And I will say that, you know, there is time that it's, as you said, the, the, the cost is over, over you know, it's, it's higher than the benefit, right? And for in the case that you mentioned, of course, if someone is running on a mainframe application, most likely it's not going to be simple to rewrite. And this is fine because there is a lot of tooling and help that we can give them around it. But so there will be application that it will not make sense to rewrite. I think, you know, it's easy for me to talk maybe because Solo is all microservices started. That's all we do. That's all we know how to do that. So we can actually maybe be more agile about re rewriting. But, um, but as I said to you, every time that I saw that happen in my career, as I said to you, was it in the, the Adocama startup that uh, the name of the company is Dynamic Op and it was very successful or the company Solo that we did it a few times, and I can tell you we did it for a couple of products, yeah, at least three or four, and I can tell you that was always the smartest idea we ever done. That's what make us scale after it. So you're paying some price, right? There were some hiccups because of it. We couldn't sell as much as, but it was so worth it after it. We'll be back with your interview with Edie in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. 
I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you for making time to listen to Maintainable. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and a writing review on Apple Podcasts to help spread the word. Also, is there someone you think I should interview on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm and make your pitch. And now, let's get back to our interview with Edith Levine. Is it a safe assumption that you're a fan of migrating from a monolith to microservices? Yeah, of course. <laughs> when do you think it's not appropriate to do that? Do you feel like there's ever a scenario where it's too premature in, say, a let's say a startup where it's like a new concept? At one point, if you're like one or maybe just a few people, how soon is too soon to do that if you don't have customers yet? I mean, I think the reason I really like microservices is because of the... You know, it depends when you're building it, what it should do, right? I mean, sometimes it's overcomplicated for no good reason, but then there is kind of like a peak, right? A, a point that it's become extremely more beneficial to do that. And the question is, what is this? And it's very different between any application and every company and the knowledge that you have, right? I would say that, you know, we are, I do believe that it's better to build your architecture from the get-go for scaling because... If you don't, you know, then, you know, you need to rewrite it. And I'm not against rewriting it, but I think that, you know, rewrite every time, even if you could prevent it, it's also not smart, right? So I think that for us, at least, we, we're trying to go, you know, microservices from the get-go. That's what we know. That's what we're using. That's what we're managing, you know. To me, you know, eventually, for instance, when we build, we build an API gateway. I mean, the API gateway needs to serve a microservices environment. This makes sense to me that it will be by itself a microservices, right? That we'll be able to scale. So I think for a lot of reasons, I think that it's even, you know, all the regular benefit of the microservices. You're, if you're an organization, it could be a different language. It could be a different protocol. It can be a different uh, release cycle. It can scale better. There's like so many advantages that I think it's overcome the, the disadvantage. Um, and yeah, it's maybe a little bit more complex, but honestly, show me the engineer that will not want to... You know, do it. What sort of questions do you does your team go through to kind of navigate if like they are going to be spinning up, say, a new microservice? And you mentioned like other languages being. Do you have like a, here's a set set of languages that we work with here, and if you want to go beyond that or propose something out, they need to go through some sort of process with your team, or is there kind of a bit of autonomy that your team can just make those decisions and they know what their their role is there? Yeah, so I think. Solo in general, most of the code that we're writing is Go. The reason Go is C++. Go because, honestly, this is the infrastructure, you know, kind of like the system engineering language. There is a lot more libraries. It's supported in most of the, you know, everything that you will need, you probably have a library that you will be able to leverage, right? So I think that's kind of like going really, really natively for the stuff that we're doing. We are writing also C++, but specifically when we're writing it, usually it's C++ async because we're writing it to the proxy and this is Envoy proxy, so we kind of like have to do it. And I think that then, you know, there's way less to, unfortunately, uh, because it's async, you can just take libraries. It's, it's more complex but it's giving us huge performance, right? It's very, the question is, you know, why are we building it for? When we're building a proxy, this is on the request, but latency is extremely important. It's important to me that it will be in language like C++ or Rust. When we're building a control plane that's feeding the data, right, and this is what we're doing with that, then honestly, it should be good, but it shouldn't be like it's, the latency is less of an issue because it's offline. 
Um, and besides that, of course, we have uh, you know, a UI, so that's written in React. And again, I think the reason we decided what we are using it is mainly because what is the thing that we can leverage the community and the libraries that exist the most? Right? So that's why we chose those decisions that we chose, if it makes sense. So, but again, if there will be something that we need to leverage, I mean, of course we will do that. And we needed to build Java into C++. We did that, right? We did it, doing everything we need. But again, it's all about the question of what will be the most beneficial thing for you. So I want to pivot a little bit and talk more about Solo and, and your product offerings and service offerings there. And so admittedly, I wasn't terribly familiar with the, I'd heard the term service mesh used. I'm not a, I don't work in the DevOps environment. I don't. Uh, I work primarily in like web application development for the most part. And so like I'm not involved in those types of decisions that often. So I was just like, so I did some a little bit of research, but for those that are also listening that may, may not be in that world, uh, what could you give us a kind of a quick high level review of what a service mesh is and how, what's how your product is kind of helping streamline that for organizations? Yeah, for sure. So it's basically very simple. We talked about moving from monolithic to microservices. What did we basically do? We fixed one thing that is, um, you know, one binary, one big binary, and we cut it to small pieces. If we're cutting it to small pieces, eventually, a lot of the stuff that we didn't need to worry about it when they were in one binary, like how the services would communicate to each other, or, you know, how it's, you know, how can we make sure that it will happen in a secure way? Where to take the lock from, all of this was pretty clear. You went to that binary, this binary was one, so you know there is no basically outside communication. So you need no need to worry about security too much, you know how to communicate between them, and if you need the locks, you're going to take it. But now it's all changed because you have a lot of little pieces and sometimes replication of them because you want to scale them. And somehow they still need to communicate to each other. They still need to now it's really, really important that it will be secure, because if it's not going to be secure, it could be like the third man of that one, someone that's coming in the middle and basically pretending being you. And then the last one is that where do you take the log from? Now you have little piece of log everywhere. You don't even know which replica it's actually it. So how do you know? And that's exactly the problem that Service Mesh is trying to solve. And the way it's doing it is basically by leveraging, it's really basically extending the API gateway functionality. So the idea with API uh, gateway functionality is that you're basically putting a proxy on the beginning, and that proxy is responsible to force a lot of stuff on this application. So maybe security, is this person allowed to talk to this or not, or, and, and a lot of other stuff. What ServiceMesh did, it took basically the same proxy and said, let's put it next to each microservices. So now envision that you have a microservices. Next to it, there is what's called a sidecar. And you're making sure that every traffic in and out to that microservices have to go to that proxy. So now envision that you have a lot, a lot, a lot of proxy, right? And somehow you need to give them the configuration because proxy is something that is very powerful. It can do a lot of stuff. But honestly, it's also pretty dumb. You need to tell them what to do. So when the request coming to the proxy, he said, I can do a lot of stuff, but hey, can you tell me what I should do? And then the way to do this is basically you have a control plane to give them configuration. So now, basically, you're giving a configuration to this control plane, and you basically, in a way, abstract the network. So when this microservices talking to that microservices, it's going through two proxy that can, for instance, say if it's even allowed. And when this proxy is talking to that proxy, before the request is going, you can go and log it somewhere. 
right? So now you basically have this and you can put some transaction on it that they will know that this is the same request. Um, and when, you know, and, and you also can make sure that they are talking and it can be very sophisticated and saying, let's let them talk only if it's Robbie, but not let them talk if it's Edith. And you can do timeout and fault injection and, uh, you know, and, uh, and, and, uh, and so on and so on. So there is a lot of functionality that suddenly you can put. And right now it's abstract and you're giving it in a configuration style versus embedded that inside the application like people done it before. And that's really easy way to do this. So now you have a lot, a lot of microservices. Next to each of them, you have a proxy that basically is the gateway to those. And then you have some control plan that given the configuration, and now you can do basically whatever you want. Let this talk to this, and so on. Just make sure, like, thinking if I understood that right, let's say I'm taking, like, a web application that has, maybe there's an API that's interacting with another, some, some other service, and rather than need to implement some authentication between each of those systems myself or in, in, in our application, we would move that kind of, say, the authorization between those requests into some other something like this in the service mesh where you can control the configuration of that and be like, all right, is, can you get, do you get down to the level of like, this endpoint can retrieve, send and retrieve data from this other one? Or is it more like, and even on a more granular level for certain like a certain user type or certain yeah you can do whatever you want you basically can there is so many ways there is also so like for instance you can say you know uh, use something like oidc who is this person what he's allowed to do you can get to a point of uh, you know if you're talking about user you can go to opa i don't know if you know what it is but it's open policy agent which is basically you can define some policy that will be applied you can get to a point that you say, you know, those services, basically, you give them an identity. So you can basically say what they're allowed and not allowed to do. You basically can go, honestly, as much as you want. You can do fine grain in every, every options. You, you can do, you we, for instance, implemented WAF there. So web application firewall to verify, you know, uh, we did data loss prevention. So, for instance, we have some customers that there are big, you know, credit card uh, a, a companies. So they wanted to make sure that if the data is going in, you know, it's not going to be, some request is not going to get it up. So, so, so honestly, it's giving you so much functionality and all with configuration, right? So you don't need to change anything in the microservices itself. You're not putting any operation code in the business logic application. It's just that. And if, for instance, right now you need to change something, you don't need to upgrade version on the application because honestly, none of the business use case actually change. You can just do it on the, you know, with configuration. So that's the way it's working. And it's really powerful because it's basically abstracting all your network in your organization. You know, we can do a lot, a lot of fine grain and make sure that it's extremely secure and well logging, you know, logging and monitoring. You can seriously see the traffic between them and the latency between them. So it's getting you a lot, a lot of visibility of of what's going on between those microservices. So you're able to kind of pull that data into something, some interface that the team can go get like a high level overview where everything is, even though that their platform is. Totally distributed. And you can do, yeah. So, so you, that's exactly what you can do. Yeah, so another thing that I think that we can do right now, it's a lot of stuff like canary deployment. So let's say that for instance, you have a, you know, a version of your API or your application, and now you want to bring another one. Write a new one. But honestly, you're not really know if it's 100% working or not. So what you can do is basically deploy the new application, start shifting only some of the traffic there, let's say 5%. And then you, you monitor it and you see if there is an error. 
if there is an arrows, you know, you immediately take the 5% back to the, to the other, to the version one. But if it's looking good, you can gradually take it to 20 and 20 and then until eventually you're basically supporting it, you know, you're trusting it and you're moving all the traffic to the new version. So it's giving you a lot of powerful and all of this you can do only with configuration, no change to the application whatsoever, which I think is very powerful. Yeah, that sounds interesting. I've, I've talked to a few people where, they're, where they had talked about, say, doing a rewrite of a service or something. And then is there any types of functionality in, these tool, in this tooling for capturing like real examples of like requests and you know what's what's coming and going through an API like an endpoint of some sort to try to use that as a to help come up with an idea of like okay here's what we're actually needing to do if we're going to rewrite this because it seems like these are the things that are actually being used and these other do we still need to even support these you know specific endpoints that are you know, like, oh, we've got three people that ever use that for some reason, whatever. Yeah, so there is these things called open tracing. I think they changed the name. Maybe now it's all open telemetry, I think. And it's basically the ability to, as I said to you, one of the problems is that you have so many microservices in your application. Imagine thousands, right? There is so many even replica from them. So you don't really know when the request is coming and what's going on. So a lot of the time, honestly, you very hard to understand what the application is doing. So one of the things that Open Tracing is doing is that this proxy is basically giving you a, a token ID. And then this token ID is propagated all the way to the request. So you can, and then when it's logged, you can actually go and collect all those logs and basically make sense of them. So one of the things that they took on this and, and, and basically advantage that is they basically managed to actually understand how the traffic between those microservices is going and say, okay, this is how your application look. Right, you have this that's talking to this that's coming then to here, and then go this, and then this is you know what I mean. You can get a visibility for everything, and I think it's honestly just making it way easier for you to understand what the application is doing. So, for instance, we had a lot of people that basically come, and the first thing that they did to look at what the application is doing by actually understand that from the open telemetry. And then they basically went back and said, okay, now I know what to look, I know what to do, right? And basically, how to architect the application. So I think, yeah, that's actually exactly what, what, I, what I, I heard that people doing. Hi there. Do you know someone who might be looking for assistance with their Ruby on Rails application? Planet Argon would love to meet them. We're offering a $1,000 referral bonus. Send someone our way, and if they sign up for services with Planet Argon, we'll give them a $1,000 discount. And in return, you'll get a check for $1,000 in the mail, just for knowing the right person. Hop on over to planetargon.com referrals for more information and to refer someone our way. That's planetargon.com referrals. Thanks. Is local development in this world like something that you're able to do when you're working with these like distributed systems? How, how do you set up this environment in like a local environment? Is that even a thing like you can, can self-contain things on a laptop? Like I come from, again, like the web application development world. I'm like I can run the application, a couple API things. I can spin up a couple different servers on my machine. It all works with itself. And then I push them to some servers and it, and it, it works, right? And so I'm like, I sometimes have, wrap, try to wrap my head around like how... Do you mimicking those environment in your computer? Yeah. Yeah, so there is tooling, right? I mean, for instance, we're using Kubernetes, right? And Kubernetes is something that you're usually spinning up in, a, in, the, in the production environment. But a lot of the time, what we're doing is locally, we're using something like, uh, there's a few of them 
kind, for instance, is one of them that we're using and so on. That's kind of like mimicking on your machine, basically, the Kubernetes, the Kubernetes environment. So that makes it pretty simple, right? Now, a lot of the problem you can catch by that, right? But honestly, what you probably know that, but we need to do an integration test of basically, you know, eventually doing all this environment. So, you know, and everything is going to a CICD that, you know, have a very heavy tested kind of like end-to-end -end environment and so on. So, and there is stuff that you will not catch. And there will be stuff that, you know, for instance, it's, it's very specific to the environment that the customer is using, right? And you need to go and, you know, then maybe we'll do a, even a Zoom session with him or something like that to figure out what is going on there. And then you discover that, for instance, for some reason, he gave only one CPU for this, this uh, microservices instead of 10, right? So it's not related to the event software, but there is some reason that the software is not working. So, you know, you can't get everybody, everything on your local machine, but you can get enough that it probably will be fine, and then you will run this, you know, you will push it, and then it will go to this very, very long pipeline and CICD process that will check it really, really well, and then it will go to production. And as I said, it still doesn't mean that it will not going to be a problem, but I think that then you can go and deep dive. Yeah, I'm always curious about for engineers in the in the industry where if they haven't had they haven't worked in an environment where they have the experience of actually getting to go work on something that someone else had already set up do you have advice for people if they were kind of curious about exploring this and how they could start dabbling in it even though they don't yeah so as i said honestly i don't think that this is a problem because this problem that you describe is happening to every engineer that drinks system engineering and there's so much great tool that people bought there as i said as I said, for, for, for Kubernetes, is, uh, is, is, there's kind of a lot of other options, and we basically you can just leverage them. And honestly, every time that you're going to the open source and you want to try a project, usually they're giving you the tool of how to do that, right? There is a very good tutorial, and those tutorials basically say, first, you need to install Docker. Second of all, install client. Third, do this, right? And it's basically teaching you quite a lot, so it's forcing you eventually to understand a lot in order to. And so, that's, so I think, for instance, we have an API gateway, you know, the, the, most of the time we're running it on Kubernetes because they're just natively running it there. You will see that exactly that's what we're doing. Like basically in our tutorial, first we will tell you which environment you want to run or you want to run it here. Here's what you need to do first, right? So we're basically taking it on our responsibility to teach you how to do this. And I can tell you that this is honestly sometimes it's so easy to do that because it's just like copy, paste, copy, paste, boom, you're up and running. I'll definitely include some links in the uh, the show notes for people for for some of these tutorials and stuff and such like that. So a couple of other quick topics I wanted to touch on while I had you was so let's you know I think that's great for sharing some advice on like how to start dabbling in these tools. You also mentioned earlier around fostering community within like your open source projects. Do you have you know for those listening that may maybe working on some open source type projects, maybe whether it's paid or not or volunteer. What are some things that you've learned that you wish you would have known earlier on in that process of open source? Like when it comes to fostering and, and building and connecting with the community, are there some approaches that you take to that or you would advise people on, on that now? Yeah, no, I mean, this is a great question. You know, back on the day, I will give you an example. Uh, we had a, we had a, when we started the API Gateway, there were another API Gateway in the market that basically, you know, on paper, Try to do the same thing, right? It all was an Envoy-based API gateway, and basically what it's, so you know, it's basically an API gateway and it's Envoy-based. So it sounds on the paper the same thing. Now, if you will look at actually the technology that was built on, you will discover that they're doing a lot of stuff that never should be done, 
<laughs> stuff that you're learning not to do in, you know, one-on-one <laughs> computer science, right? They still did that. And, and still, for some reason, people go very, very excited about that product versus us. And I was in shock. I said, I don't get it. Why do they don't understand? It took me a lot of understanding. I, I, what I was very frustrated with is what I don't understand. Because I looked at this code. This code was 10 times better. It will scale. It will be the right way. And then I look at the other project, and I know it's messed up, and I know it's not going to work, and I know it's not going to scale, but obviously everybody is interested in going there. And it took me a lot of time to understand what was the problem. So the first thing that I learned from it, and that's the feedback that we start getting from, from customers and from users and the community is, you know, your docs are horrible. How are we supposed to know, right? I mean, we don't even know how to go up and running. Your docs is horrible. And I remember myself saying, but that's still the right thing. Like, I was very frustrated about it. This is the right thing, though. And they said, well, we don't know that. What we know is that we're taking this, we're trying this project, it works. We're trying your project. We need to guess what's going on. We don't know. We need to go to the court. Just a lot of work. So I think that, you know, I have an amazing, um, my chief architect who is brilliant, basically, a lot of the time I ask him, is it documented? And he said, it's documented in the go, which is mainly basically it's the code, right? And, and that, that's, it. that's usually not working. So I think that, first of all, the most important thing that I learned from it is that document, make it easy to use, make it people will be able to leverage that. I think that that probably is the most, most important thing. So that's that. The second thing, honestly, as I said to you, there were a lot of things that I just didn't get, right? I mean, you sometimes don't know, right? You're putting a product out there, you're assuming that this is good, and suddenly you see someone choosing the other one, and you ask him, but why? What make you choose this one by the other? And it's a very simple thing. It's like, you allow that feature for the open source and not in the closed source, right? So I will go with the product of giving it in the open source. And sometimes it's something that is very easy to add to the project. Like, for instance, a good example was that we... We basically had an external auth and, a, and, a, and rate limiting, but we didn't, uh, it was part of the enterprise. So there were people that went to the other API gateway because they basically allow you to bring you on. So it took us very, you know, really quick to understand that, you know, if this is what you guys want, it would be very simple to ask for it, right? And we added real quick and suddenly things went up. But the thing that I will say, the best that I can say about community it's so important, and it's very important because that people that are using your product. And yeah, maybe they're not paying a dime, but it's so important because they have different environment, because they have different command, uh, uh, requests, because they're using different use cases. And I can tell you that from what I learned, that's what makes the product better. So we specifically, as a huge Slack community, I think 5,000 people there, who honestly, you know, basically have an amazing relationship of what should we do next? And what is the feature that they're interesting? And if they have problems, we overcome them. And then we're finding bugs and we're finding, you know, maybe something that is not best practice and we fix it. And we discover suddenly that our doc is not good enough. So we're going and fix it. You know, we explain it simpler that people will understand that. And all of this is thank you for users, right? So as I said, the most important thing is that people will use your product and all your software and, you know, and I, I'm very thankful on the fact that we have pretty big, big community. That's, that's awesome. I appreciate you digging into that for us. I, you know, I was reflecting on some of my own open source projects. And I think that one of my projects that has had some success, and I think so much of it has been because I kept going thinking, documentation, but it was more like that first time user experience was the most important thing to me. And I'm like, people, and I always thought 
people are going to outgrow this software project at some point. This project will not be relevant in five or 10 years. It's still like 13 years later, still relevant, but it's still like this. I never believed that, but I'm like, I just want to make it easy for people right now in this part of their career. I've had people tweeting about it today and I was just like, this is ridiculous, like so many years later, but it's always like that. And they're so enthusiastic about it. I'm like, this is awesome. And I'm like, there's so many better tools that were better, that were better written than what I produced. But I'm like, I think I maybe like the other, the other project you mentioned, I'm like, the experience was what I focused on. And I'm like, I don't, my code in that is not very great. It has a lot of problems. So it should probably be rewritten five times. So, well, uh, a couple of my last couple of quick questions for you. Um, one of the things I like to do with ask everybody is like, is there a non-technical, non-software development book that you recommend to your peers on a regular basis? So a lot of the books that I'm reading is either technical, the how thing about the how thing with Adrisson. I think Adrisson was the one that uh, or it or orbit, one of those. <laughs> I think that the reason I enjoy it is because our craziness what is, was his experience and how many times, how many times he was down and, you know, kind of like in the last minute was safe. And I think this is startup. This is the, this world, right? Sometimes you're up, sometimes you're down. It's kind of like a roller coaster. And I think that it's very interesting. Uh, you know, again, it's, it's, not, it's not technology-based. It's more business-based. But I have to say that to me, at least, it was, it was crazy, specifically because I was in the tech in that time. I was just an engineer, so I wasn't aware of everything that happening. It was so interesting to learn what happened behind the scenes. And you know how sometimes technology is not, the only reason that something is successful. It's true. There's, there's a lot of factors that go into it. Yeah, I will I'll include links to that for everybody in the show notes. And with that, where can people best learn more about your thoughts and ruminations on software development online? Do you tweet very often? Do you have a blog? And where can people find more, learn more about Solo? Yeah, so... So to find about Solo, it's easy. It's solo.io uh, website. We can go and see what we're doing there. We also have a Twitter account, and we also have a, a, we are very active on LinkedIn. So honestly, we are innovating all the time, right? That's what I like about Solo. And you will see a lot of new stuff coming out there. So that's number one. Number two, you know, about me. So unfortunately, I'm not blogging and tweeting as much as I, as, as I am already. Like, just really busy of uh, building the company. But I will say that I have a Twitter account. I would love if people will follow me. Even if I'm not tweeting myself, I at least retweeting very important tweets. Great. I'll definitely include links to that in the show notes as well. And with that, it's been such a delight having you join us and talk shop on Maintainable Edit. Thank you so much for talking shop and sharing more about Solo and your ruminations on software development with our, with our listeners. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. It's great to be here.